Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good evening and welcome. I'm Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, the first weekend after the passing of Queen Elizabeth didn't turn out quite the way the Australian Republican movement predicted it would. For years, the Republicans have been saying that the passing of the beloved Queen would, when it happened, initiate a new stage in Australian history, that the end of her era would be the beginning of ours as a fully independent republic. In January, Malcolm Turnbull said, quote, the next referendum should be after the end of the Queen's reign. When that occurs, whether by death or abdication, it will be a historical watershed, a time for reflection on the past and, most importantly, the future, unquote. Republican movement chair Peter Fitzsimons said only three months ago, quote, there is no doubt that we, by which he means Republicans, will get a surge once Australia leans in close and looks at King Charles, unquote. Fitzsimons is famously bad at making predictions, but this one might be his worst yet. Not only did Charles step seamlessly into the role, he also immediately dispensed with his pet political causes, which are unbecoming of a monarch and which Republicans hoped would turn Australians off him as their king. Charles said in his first address to the nation as king broadcast on Friday, It will no longer be possible for me to give so much of my time and energies to the charities and issues for which I care so deeply. His separation from these causes was made clear elsewhere in that speech. 13 years ago, Charles was warning us that the future of the planet was in peril, that we had only 96 months in order to save it from man-made environmental catastrophe and only human interaction could prevent it happening. Contrast that with how he now sees his own future. He pledged to uphold the constitutional principles at the heart of the United Kingdom for, quote, the remaining time God grants me, unquote. It's understandable that Charles spent so much of his time and energy over the past few decades pursuing environmental causes and rubbing shoulders with the self-appointed elite at such places as the World Economic Forum. But, the, but from the time he became an adult, he was told he couldn't get a job and that the job he'd been born to do to do the job he'd been born to do, he'd have to wait for his mother to die first. No amount of British stoicism was going to prevent that messing with his head after a decade or two. 
It's a reassuring sign of the depth, meaning and decency of the British monarchy that as soon as he was called to fill the role, King Charles snapped into it. And so did the rest of the world. The ceremonies at St James and the Royal Exchange in London on the weekend went ahead as if they were weekly occurrences. In fact, they hadn't been held for 70 years, and even then they weren't televised live around the world to an audience of billions. The occasion provided everyone with a role to play. Crowds gathered outside various royal residences, chanting long live the king. The princes and princesses buried the hatchet of recent times and walked among their subjects. And a noticeably multicultural procession of guards and trumpeters put on a polished and often moving show. Even Sadiq Khan, the narcissistic virtue signalling mayor of London, dutifully played his part as a member of the Privy Council to witness Charles signing the proclamation at St James Palace. The proclamation is like a contract between the monarch and the people. As commentator David Starkey said, quote, the king is king by the will of the people, unquote. This arrangement was first made between the British Parliament and the joint monarchs William, and, William III and Mary II in 1689, setting out the limitations of the power of the crown and guaranteeing certain rights to civilians. Australians can, if they wish, terminate this contract by a referendum to alter our constitution. The question is, why would we? We have just witnessed the seamless, indeed entertaining and celebratory transition of power from the Queen of Australia to her son, the King. Meanwhile, the last two transitions of power from one president to the next in the United States have been increasingly rancorous, have corrupted federal bu bureaucracies and nudged the nation ever closer to a civil war. It started with Hillary Clinton financing an investigation into Donald Trump's links to Russia in 2016. Much of the world's media, including Australia's ABC and the FBI, gave the investigation enormous credence. But Trump won the election anyway. The investigation has since been exposed as a hoax, but Clinton has never been thoroughly investigated, let alone charged for, him, her, for her involvement with it. Trump's allegation that the 2020 election was rigged led to the relatively peaceful storming of the Capitol building in Washington on January 6 last year, many of the perpetrators of which spent months in solitary confinement as virtual political prisoners in their own country, even while far more violent Democrat-supporting rioters burned and looted cities across the US. Under Joe Biden, the FBI has raided Trump's home on spurious grounds, despite serious and highly credible allegations of corruption against Biden himself and his son Hunter, as well as Clinton. And according to Steve Bannon, the FBI raided the homes of 35 Trump allies on Friday. Curiously, they did it while the world was distracted by Elizabeth's passing. The indications in the US are that this deep social divide is now almost beyond repair. It's difficult to imagine any democratic transition of power there without more social upheaval, political retribution 
and random outbreaks of violence. Aren't we lucky to be avoiding that here in Australia? Would we become more like the US if we became a republic? I'd say we almost certainly would. We are already more divided than ever, thanks to social media and the breakdown of the unifying cultural ballast of religion and patriotism. To most of us, Elizabeth personified the virtues of service, humour, modesty and hard work. But her death doesn't, as the Republicans predicted, mean those virtues are now gone. On the contrary, her passing reminds us how important these virtues are and how inextricable they are from our current political system. My guess is that Charles is feeling this more than ever right now. Australia has in some ways evolved into an even better country than Britain. We're certainly more prosperous and egalitarian. But that doesn't mean we must inevitably, as the Republicans keep telling us we will, sever ties with the monarchy. It is perfectly reasonable to both love Australia and still value our ties to Britain. This is how I think most of us feel today. The Republicans just don't seem to understand this and probably never will. Whatever future they envisage for Australia, it can't possibly be better than the one we've got already. Stories published on the ABC website normally don't qualify for this Woke Watch segment on account of them being too predictable and a bit one-dimensional. But I couldn't resist this yarn because it is an almost perfect ABC story. It features two perennial ABC favourites, unproductive ways for the government to spend your money and climate change. About 20% of Victorian houses have solar panels. Public housing advocates want new panels installed on 23,000 existing public housing properties. It could save those tenants around $500 a year, with a project cost of around $117 million. All right, so taxpayers who are already paying for public housing should now cough up for solar panels on those houses so the residents can save themselves 500 bucks a year. Where does the $500 rebate come from? Well, from you, of course. The way the ABC presents this, it's a win-win result. Down and out public housing residents can live their best lives by spending the extra $500 a year on luxuries, and the government postpones the climate catastrophe by forcing a large number of energy consumers onto renewables. The only catch is that it will cost you, the taxpayer, a lazy $117 million up front, followed by another $11 million a year in rebates. As far as the billion-dollar ABC is concerned, that's a bargain. It's also a bargain for the public housing resident they wheeled out to complain that he can't put solar panels on his house. The resident reeled off the ABC talking points so effortlessly, I'm surprised he wasn't hired on the spot to be the national broadcaster's local social welfare and environment reporter. At least then he'd be able to buy his own house and not have to wait for the government to give him the solar panels he needs and so obviously deserves. 
Of course, this is the sort of issue that the ABC thinks should be put to the people. Advocates want both sides of politics to commit to the plan before the state election in November. Taxpayers, meanwhile, are hoping neither side of politics will touch this dead-set batty idea with a barge pole. Well, as I said, I think a lot of us consider ourselves lucky to live under the British monarchy. The stability of the system has enabled us to create a prosperous and egalitarian society that is envied by most people around the world. But if you believe the ABC, the royal family has deliberately excluded one group of Australians from this wealth and equality. The ABC reported yesterday, quote, for more than 200 years, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have made direct appeals to the royal family over past and current policies that have seen Indigenous people subjugated on their own lands, unquote. The definition, the definition of subjugate is, quote, bring under domination or control, especially by conquest, unquote. Well, as they say on social media, huge if true. The facts don't back it up, though. If our education system and public broadcaster did their job, every Australian would know by heart the instructions by which Arthur Phillip established the colony at New South Wales in 1788. Quote, you are to endeavour by every possible means to open an intercourse with the natives and to conciliate their affection, enjoining all our subjects to live in amity and kindness with them." Unquote. He was also told that if any British subject should commit a crime against the natives, the subject should be liable to whatever punishment applied under the law. In other words, the natives were considered equal before British law. Philip himself wrote, quote, in a new country, there will be no slavery and hence no slaves, unquote. British politician William Wilberforce was famous for having led the abolishment of, the, of slavery with the Slave Trade Act. But he didn't do that until 19 years later. Australians should be immensely proud that their original colony was founded on such optimistic and humanist principles. But instead, the miserable, sanctimonious drones at the ABC and their counterparts in our historically illiterate education system are determined to convince us that Australia always was, and probably always will be, a racist colonial hellhole. My next guest is Gideon Rosner from the Institute of Public Affairs. Gideon, welcome. Great to be here as always, my friend. Gideon, the ABC responded yeah, to yeah. the death of Queen Elizabeth by reminding us that she symbolised the colonisation of this content, continent and the subjugation of the natives. Do you think they missed the point? Look, it's not so much that they missed the point. It is that they, this, this, what bothers me is this ahistorical, ignorant, uh, revisionist history of Queen Elizabeth's reign. For one thing, she was, was coronated or became queen in 1952. That's a long time after the colonies of Australia ceased to be. Um, but more to the point, you know, the, in terms of uh, colonialism and the English, look, whatever you think of colonialism and the mistakes that were made during that era of human history, it was a reality. The English were not, or the British, I should say, were not the only people to engage in it. And you have to look at 
the way in which the British colonisation under the British was so much better in the end than it was under the French or the Belgians, certainly, or the Portuguese or the Spanish or everything else in terms of the infrastructure and the institutions built by the British in terms of the treatment of the native people, as they were called then, by the British. And the other fact to remember, of course, also, is that looking at Queen Elizabeth, she had more former Commonwealth realms reach independence than any monarch before her put together. The, the way in which colonialism was actually unwound and closed out under Queen Elizabeth is something that you could note in her 70-year reign. But, of course, that's lost on uh, the left-wing industrial complex that wants to see things in a, in a certain way uh, and wants to colour our history and world history, indeed, in a certain way to fit, fit their own ideological uh, pretensions. The New York Times even went so far as to blame her for colonialism and then blame her for decolonialism. They, they, the left always like to have it both ways. But when, when Elizabeth and Prince Philip toured Australia in 1954, I don't know if you remember it yourself, Gideon, but they visited mm. 57 towns and cities in 58 days. And legend has it that 70% of the nation actually saw them in person. Now, Charles and Camilla un are unlikely to command that sort of affection and reverence. But Gideon, do you think that means we're becoming a republic? Look, I think it's a different country to how it was in the, in the 1950s generally. I think if Queen Elizabeth herself had rocked up uh, to Australia, and, and indeed she did, uh, you wouldn't see two-thirds of the country turning out. That just reflects the, the nature of the, the, the country and how it's changed. Um, but... Charles and Camilla, I don't think that necessarily will affect whether how likely it is that we'll become a republic. I mean, don't forget when the republic was held, the referendum was held uh, last time in 1999. Uh, the monarchy was not, or the royal family was not as favourably viewed as they are viewed as they are. These days, uh, the 90s were not a good decade for the royals. The Queen did lose uh, a bit of esteem, uh, rightly or wrongly, over the death of Princess Diana. So that, that in the end, didn't make any difference at all to the outcome. The, re, uh, the Republic went down resoundingly in 1999. I think Australians do not vote on this issue based on their opinion of the current sovereign or the current monarch. They base it, quite rightly, on their assessment of the system. Uh, and in 1999, as well, I think, Next time the referendum is tried, that if it ain't broke, don't fix it, message uh, won the day. I don't think it's contingent on Charles and Camilla uh, and what they do. However, I will say this, if we see some of the gratuitous uh, political interference that we saw out of uh, see from King Charles that we saw out of Prince Charles uh, on climate, on the Great Reset, on all sorts of other things, well, I'll tell you what, I'll be donning a bandana and joining the ARM myself, but all signs are that uh, King Charles knows his constitutional role is different and it appears as if he'll be more restrained. Uh, time will tell, obviously, but uh, we, we do need him to stay out of our domestic political affairs and indeed energy policy uh, going forward if he want wants to command the same respect uh, that his predecessor and mother did. Well, just as King Charles seems to have abandoned or has, has promised to abandon the causes that he was so uh, enamoured by uh, as a prince, so too have Australians, I believe, um, been reminded of the values that the monarch actually represents. Now, this moment, the, the Republicans in Australia, as I said in my uh, editorial earlier, the Republicans in Australia have been waiting for this moment, and I think they utterly misread it. They thought this was going to be the moment when everyone goes, oh, okay, well, the Queen's gone. Time for us to sever ties with the monarchy, and we will become a republic. 
I don't think it's turning out that way. How could the Republican movement have got it so wrong, Gideon? I think they were reasonably restrained. Uh, the, the statements were a little bit cheeky, saying, uh, effectively suggesting what you're saying, that with the death of the Queen comes a new discussion for the Republic. Uh, it wasn't as shameless as somebody like Adam Band, who basically said condolences, and now let's push for a treaty and all sorts of other things. Um, but what I will say is that the messaging has seemed to change from the Republican movement. Uh, the, the messaging previously was that uh, the Queen has no role in Australia, what she done for us, uh, no relevance to the country, doesn't know us, foreign head of state, blah, blah, blah. After the death of Queen Elizabeth, the message seemed to be, oh, she was wonderful, such a great Queen, so great to Australia, such an icon. And, you know, she's so good. She was so wonderful. Nobody could ever be as good as Queen Elizabeth was. So maybe we should uh, transition on, uh, indeed, from the uh, the monarchy. So uh, a bit too cheeky from the Australian Republican movement, a bit too clever by half. Um, again, as I said, I don't think it's contingent on any particular monarch. I think what Australians do appreciate is the system, or more to the point, the fruits of of the system, the end product, uh, which is the stable parliamentary democracy that we've known for uh, the better part of 120 odd years now. Right, let's talk about the forthcoming Victorian election. You're down in Melbourne. We've been saying all along that Victorians really need to ditch Dan Andrews, even if it is only for Matthew Guy. I get the feeling, Gideon, that the needle has shifted a bit towards uh, Matthew Guy, even if he's gone from nearly impossible to the long odds outsider. W what's your take on it? Well, firstly, I'd say nothing is impossible in Victoria. Victoria has a long history of throwing up surprises. Uh, nobody expected Jeff Kennett to lose in 1999. Nobody expected Tid Ballew to win in 2010. I remember that victory party very well. It was one of the strangest ones I've ever uh, been to because I think there was a lot of concern in that room that Premier Ted would not be uh, a particularly de a good one. And indeed, that looked like it, it came about. Um, so I, th I think that Matthew Guy has tightened things. I think he's still an outside chance at this stage. But what I will say is I think he's starting to get the memo. Uh, I think the, tr the decision to scrap the outer suburban ring row, uh, uh, suburban rail loop was a good one. Uh, I think that was the is the kind of thing that people really need to see to see some product differentiation between the coalition and Labor. I think the decision to reopen Victoria for gas exploration was one that was sorely, sorely needed. Again important product differentiation at a time when Victoria is basically running out of gas. Uh, nothing is impossible in Victoria if Matthew Guy can just keep doing the right things and picking the right fights for the right reasons over the right policy and at the right people and the right set of voters, uh, then he could be Premier in November. But we have a long way to go from then. Well, you've just mentioned a bunch of things that, that are positive, you know, uh, policies that he could adopt. But what about criticising the incumbent? There's a lot to go for, isn't there? There is a lot to go for. Uh, look, the problem is that Matthew Guy copped a lot of flack last time he was leader for being too combative, for being too shouty, I think the focus group said. Um, so I think he's probably spooked by that last experience. The other issue is that during a campaign, you don't get the leader being too negative. You want to preserve the leader as being the friendly face of the campaign, the alternative premier. Typically, what you have is you have the premier's or the leader's team going out there and being the attack dogs. Uh, the problem, of course, being that Matthew Guy doesn't have much of a team around him. Uh, like any other state parliamentary party, uh, there's a mix of good and bad, but the team largely consists of duds. So what can you do? Uh, the best attack dogs were people like uh, Tim Smith, who sadly on his way out. So uh, without that, you have the 
you know, uh, the, the leader having to be a one-man band and there's not enough time in the media cycle to be both the friendly alternative premier and the attack dog in the, in the same news bulletin. Well, one thing that uh, Dan Andrews is making it easy for Matthew Guy is, is his um, reluctance to walk among the people. One of the things that was interesting to see on the weekend was the royals just walking among their subjects. If, if they had any security among them, it was very discreet. Um, yet Dan Andrews never, never risks that. He's never among the people. He's not, he's not even a man of the people, really, is he? That, this, is a, this is plenty of opportunity for Matthew Guy to uh, give him a product differential, as you say. Yeah, well, look, he, well, that, that would be a good start. Maybe he should start, uh, you know, going out to communities, being seen to be among the people doing what Dan does not do uh, in his ivory tower or his bunker out there in Mulgrave. But the, the answer is Dan Andrews doesn't go out and meet the people because he can't, because there would be somebody in the crowd whose life has been ruined uh, by two years of dictator Dan uh, during corona who would be there and pick a fight with him, somebody probably with a very sad story, somebody who, God forbid, has had children who've been completely messed up or worse from being locked inside for two years on end. Uh, the, the, the thing is, Dan has a very, very carefully crafted image, and part of that image is the I stand with Dan PR guy uh, myth of Dan's popularity and, and being a strong leader, the more he's out there and the more he gets yelled at by people who have understandable grievances against him, uh, the more that image starts to fade away and the more the emperor has is left with no clothes. So I don't think we'll see much of Dan out and about during the campaign. I think it'll be a lot more stage managed than that. Do you think the same contrast applies <laughs> at the federal level? I mean, Peter Dutton really has, he's, has he's, there's a lot of free hits going on uh, Anthony Albanese at the moment. But he just seems reluctant to, uh, to you know, take a swing. What, what, what's your take on the federal contrast? Look, I'm a believer in Peter Dutton. I think it, he has it in him to be a great leader and indeed to win the next election. Uh, the problem for Peter Dutton is he is bound by circumstances partly beyond his control, uh, putting it charitably. Partly his party room is still full of the rump of uh, those terrible moderates who, uh, you know, should really be in the Labor Party, but they couldn't possibly do that because that would show bad breeding. So they end up in the Liberal Party trying to impose Labor policies uh, from within. So that means he is limited to what he can do, for example, on uh, rejecting the so-called voice to parliament, on rejecting net zero and Labor's climate bill. Uh, and also he's actually bound by the terrible performance that was the Morrison government in, the, in its last term. Uh, the, he can't campaign on debt and deficit and inflation because the Morrison government plunged us into a debt that will reach $1 trillion. That was a coalition move, not a Labor move. Uh, the coalition spent more than Gough Whitlam or Kevin Rudd could ever have dreamed of. Similarly, what did Scott Morrison do at the 11th hour? Signed up to net zero. So he can't exactly say that was a mistake without copying flack from that end. Uh, so Peter Dutton needs to work, fear, work out a way to clear these barnacles and get a, a fresh message out, uh, but that'll take some time. But in the meantime, we wait to see a little bit better from Peter Dutton than what we're seeing now. And finally, before you go, Gideon, Peppa Pig now includes a lesbian couple. This is a globally successful kids animation show. It's gone woke. Do you think it'll go broke? I don't know what to think about the lesbian couple on Peppa Pig. I mean, on the one hand, there are lesbian couples in Australia in 2022. They do adopt children. It's not such a, 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 a radically uh, different, you know, this isn't like 
you know, gender neutral training in safe schools and things like that. I wouldn't put it on that level. But what I will say is that this is, it seems to me to be driven by this fad of representation. Oh, we need to make sure there are non-heterosexual relationships. Oh, we need to make sure there are a diverse ethnic mix. Oh, we need to make sure there is a disabled person. There's nothing wrong with characters, meaning all of these descriptions. But to pur purposely spend your time worrying how to make your uh, your character list diverse along the, the lines of these skin-deep superficialities rather than focusing on things like plot and character and narrative and themes and, and development of the show. I think that robs art of something. I think it is making art too sterilised and I don't think it will add much to Peppa Pig or anything else. So, look, no problem with lesbian couples, but let's stop obsessing over these minor details. Let's focus on what makes these shows great and something that the kids will enjoy. They don't care about diversity or representation or all that other crap. Let's just think, you know, make it about the children for once. Exactly. Shakespeare didn't have to worry about what 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 uh, his cast was made up of, so I don't think Peppa Pig should either. Gideon Rosner, thanks for your time. Thanks, Fred. That's Gideon Rosner of the Institute of Public Affairs. Well, no matter where you live or work in Australia, you probably know at least one absolutely loopy leftist because they are everywhere these days. It could be a colleague, a relative, a mate's crazy girlfriend, or an old schoolmate who you've reconnected with on Facebook and now wish you hadn't. Getting sucked into conversations with this type of person is easy because you, being sensible and polite, assume that even the most contentious topics needn't be debated rudely or aggressively. But that's not how they see it. Having superior opinions and morality means they only need to shout platitudes at you and when you fail to agree, then you're a racist making them feel unsafe. My next guest knows one of these crazy leftists. In fact, she could be one of the craziest leftists in Australia right now. He knows her because he works with her in the Australian Senate. Watch this Oscar winning performance from her last week. A senator in, the, in this place uh, just called another senator a, a racist, and I'd ask for that to be withdrawn. I think that's entirely reasonable. Senator Thorpe. President, I was stating a fact. With all due respect, Acting Deputy President, could you please inform me what the ramifications would be for me to remove my remark about somebody being racist and I me not feeling safe. I don't want to give your platform to I need to know the what the ramifications are. Could I seek advice? Now, while this kind of petulance is bad enough at a family gathering or party, the fact that it is happening in the Australian Senate should alarm us all. Our parliamentary system wasn't designed for people who can't debate without resorting to name calling. Thorpe is no Robinson Crusoe in lowering the standards in federal parliament, but she is the first, I suspect, to say she feels unsafe in one of the most heavily guarded chambers in the country. Let's bring in the man who caused all this anguish, South Australian Senator Alex Antich. Alex, welcome. Oh, thanks, Fred. Thanks for that wrap-up. I caused all this anguish. Yeah, there I was walking in thinking I was just delivering a nice little speech about Western civilization, and it all just blew up on me. So here <laughs> well, we are. Let's, let's get back to where how it started. What did you say to deserve being called a racist? 
It's a great question. Well, I, I mean, the, I'll give you the thrust of what I was trying to say. It was a, it was a, a relatively short contribution, but basically I was trying to say I, I'm worried about where we're headed in the, in the West. I'm worried about the ability for people to be able to debate and the robust nature of our politicians, our leaders, our media to try and tell things like they are for fear of being called names. So, I was talking about the so-called isms and phobias. You know, you might be racism or transphobia or whatever it might be. Um, and then out of left field came calls of you're a racist or you're being racist or that's racist. I didn't hear it as it turns out. I'm only going on what I heard afterwards, but it kind of highlighted the point. I mean, the, the, the thrust of the speech really was about protecting our institutions uh, and uh, these sort of throwaway lines of it's all racist. Now, this is not an unusual scenario. This happens all the time in the chamber. And, you know, it's usually from the corner of the, you know, the, 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 the chamber that that one came from. But I, I really was quite blown away because it didn't seem like there was anything even remotely racist about, uh, about what was being said. And then before we know it, it sort of entered into this you know, WWF like, uh, you know, free for all with, uh, you know, Senator McGrath getting up and, and, and pointing out what had happened. And then Deb O'Neill, who uh, was acting deputy president at that stage, Labor senator, uh, making the point, saying, well, this needs to be withdrawn. It's unparliamentary. And that's, that's sort of where it began and ended. And Senator Thorpe refused to do it and then eventually came back later on and begrudgingly withdrew the comment. Um, so, you know, it was all, it was all just uh, another day in paradise, I suppose. Why did she begrudgingly remove the, or, or sort of uh, correct herself? What happened while she moved, She left the Senate and came back? What was that about? Well, it was a little, I, suppose, I suppose she went and got some advice. I mean, we, we were right in the middle of the climate change bill debate, and I assume she wanted to be involved in that, or I, look, I just don't know. But the, the, the point is that there are standing orders in the Senate. Everyone thinks that you've got parliamentary privilege. You can just walk in and shoot your mouth off and say whatever you like. But, of course, you can't because there are rules, even in that lawless jungle that is the Australian Parliament. Um, and uh, and things you can't do are name-calling. So, in truth, the most difficult place in many parts of the country to actually say, call someone a racist or accuse them of being racist is actually on the floor of the Senate because um, it, it, it does incur the wrath of the standing orders and therefore the presiding officer. And it's actually very hard to get thrown out of the Senate. It's, it's much easier in the House uh, of, of reps because the rules just allow people to get, as you see on TV, turfed out left, right and centre for, for whatever reason. But in the Senate, you have to actually almost be pulled up and warned a number of times and, and really transgress. So, you know, I think that's where it was headed. And, uh, and yeah, for whatever reason, um, she backtracked. She's backtracked before, of course. She, she didn't want to sign the role and pledge allegiance to the Queen, take the oath and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, we've seen these theatrics, they are what they are, it doesn't bother me, highlighted the point nicely, but it just goes to show the sky doesn't fall in when you when you have a have a say and you speak the truth, and we've all got to start doing that because this sort of stuff is bulldozing through us and our institutions. Well, I referred to you two as colleagues earlier, and I didn't say that lightly. I mean, our parliamentary system is based on the idea that Despite their differences, MPs are expected to share the same goal of making Australia a better country for its citizens. Do you get the feeling, Alex, that you share the same goals with Senator Thorpe? Look, I just don't know. I've just never had much to do with Senator Thorpe to know what her ambitions and her goals are, to be honest. But I mean, I, I you know, I mean, I do wonder sometimes 
uh, about you know the Greens and uh, and what they're what they're um, you know what they're pushing, even if it's inadvertently. I, I don't think the things they're pushing are in the best interest of the country, and we should all be pushing in that direction. I mean, you know, this sort of radical climate change agenda, and uh, you know, if you look at their defence policy, it, it basically is a disarmament policy. You know, it's sort of like hopefully we can chat and you know get along with Putin, and you know it'll all be okay. It's all rainbows and unicorn stuff. So I, I don't really know. I don't really have much to, to do or speak. I try not to. And, uh, you know, that's sort of a bit of a shame in itself. But welcome to Parliament in 2022. Well, I'd say it's not overstating it to say that this emotional level of debate leads to some pretty dark places. In Las Vegas last week, a low-level Democratic uh, politician stabbed to death a journalist who had been investigating stories about his management style. Of course, it's not only leftists that resort to violence, but I'd suggest that they uh, do it more often. Alex, do you think civility is dying? Yeah, look, I do. I have to say it's a real shame. I think it is dying off a little bit. And, you know, we see this all the time in just public life generally. And, you know, and and look, one of the things I think that conservative politics has done very badly over the years has been not to fight harder. And I think it's probably through that sense of civility and taking the high moral ground and all that sort of stuff. So conservative politics needs to learn a little bit from the left. And I'm not suggesting anyone goes out and you know, swings headbutts or anything like that, or, you know, but but I, I do think conservative politics has to toughen up. That was really the point of what I was trying to say is, I don't think the quiet Australians, conservative politicians, or anyone of that ilk are the establishment anymore. I think as soon as you've got that rainbow flag flying over an embassy, uh, you are the establishment. And uh, I think the left are now almost at that position, despite constantly trying to pretend otherwise. I mean, we still hear this language coming out of the Greens corner, the Green corner, if you like, in the chamber, that you know, it's all us that have got mates in big business and corporates and all this sort of stuff. Well, I tell you what, the ESG agenda in corporate Australia wouldn't wouldn't suggest I've got many mates in corporate Australia. You might say I've got many mates full stop. That's probably true as well. But, um, you know, it's certainly not in the corporate world, I can assure you. So, you know, I, I think conservative politics has got to toughen up a bit, frankly. Alex, you've got plenty of mates here at ADHTV, I can guarantee that. <laughs> now, speaking of the death of civility, let's talk about the passing of Queen Elizabeth and the ascension of Prince Charles. Will the modesty and civility that Elizabeth represented, <clears throat> excuse me, survive into the era of uh, King Charles, do you think, Alex? Look, I think it probably will. I mean, she was, you know, very, very, very polished in terms of her demeanour and her lack of wish to get involved in politics and the issues of the day. And that that is pretty extraordinary for someone that reigned for 70 plus years. I mean, I can't think of a time really where the Queen drifted into partisan politics or, or overstepped the mark. It's an amazing, amazing effort. So, and that of course cannot be said for Charles, who's, you know, a, uh, a you know sort of a climate change warrior and all the rest of it. So it'll be interesting to see whether he continues on with that. I think he'd be wise to step out of the limelight of lobbying and activism once he's, you know, assumed the position properly. But look, I think in terms of overall civility and demeanour, I expect we will. He's he's had a good mentor and his mother, and I don't think we're going to see him uh, swearing at the camera or, or uh, you know, sculling a beer or, you know, anything like that in the near future. But it's going to be very interesting to see how the monarchy makes the transition now. I, I, I think it will be different. I think the public perception will be different, and you'd expect that. I mean, you'd expect that after you know, the beloved monarchs passing, you'd get a, a period of transition. So let's wait and see. But I, I don't think civility is going to be their issue. How does the, what, what's the uh, perspective, perspective of the, uh, or perception of the royal family from someone whose family is half Serbian? I'm talking about, you know, how relevant <laughs> is the monarchy in multicultural Australia? That's what I'm trying to say. 
Yeah, look, and it's a good question. I think uh, probably be a, a question for you know more broadly out in the community than me. I mean, I'm, I'm a you know a constitutional monarchist, and uh, I think the system served us so well. You know, it's almost even if you don't like the players or the actors in it, you've got to, you've got to approve of the system. I'm not saying that's me, but I'm, you know, even for people out there who who perhaps have got a problem with uh, the concept, the system works so well, and it served us so well for 200 plus years. So. You know, I really never looked past that, and I think people are the same. The sort of concept that the Queen is the figurehead and the sovereign is is almost a bit esoteric for people these days, and I think we're just relying on, on our system and our constitution, uh, the Governor-General being the person that's that's sort of waving the flag here. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess it probably does seem a little far removed for people, but a lot of European countries have a royal family. There's a Serbian royal family as well. I've, I've met a couple of them many years ago, and... Uh, you know, similar themes. I mean, European people are used to it, you know, on all angles, I would have thought. So uh, I, we, we can cope pretty well. Well, it's interesting to note that politically, Charles is closer to Lydia Thorpe than he is to his mother, but we are all confident that he won't impose his, uh, his politics, let alone behave like Lydia Thorpe does in the Senate. What do you think, Alex? I think there's a pretty small chance of that. I think so. But yeah, look, it really is interesting. I mean, he's been very, very outspoken about some of these global issues. And, you know, of course, he's uh, well connected to the World Economic Forum. And uh, that, that doesn't fill me with a sense of enormous confidence, I have to say. But uh, we've got to give uh, the institution the benefit of the doubt. And we, we've got to keep rolling through it. Let's see. Let's hope he takes his foot off the accelerator when it comes to net zero, though. I, I would really appreciate that. I went down to the, I, w I watched the uh, proclamation on Macquarie Street in uh, Sydney yesterday, and I was quite surprised, and I've got to say amused, um, to uh, experience a welcome to country before the proclamation. Now, there's an there's a inherent contradiction here, Alex. Uh, I'd love you to uh, try to explain it for me. If we are proclaiming Charles as King of Australia, why do we need someone else to welcome us to the country? It's a great question, isn't it? I'd probably defer to Jacinda Price on this one, who said that Senator Price, who said uh, in her maiden speech that she was tired of tired of welcoming and being welcomed, you know, as the case may be. And uh, I think we're all a bit tired of it, honestly. And you know, the AFLW, uh, you know, laid their cards on the table this weekend, didn't they, when they decided to um, to sort of scrub the uh, you know the minute silence for the Queen and, and left in the uh, the welcome to country. I, Look, I just think we're into this world of hyper-wokeism. It's not not surprising at all that we'd see that, but it is entirely um, curious and, you know, ironic in a sense that we'd be, um, you know, doing that. It, it, it's, it's, we're all a bit sick of it, I think. Let, let's move on. We're all welcomed. We all feel very welcome. Let's get on with it. Yeah, just like we've uh, been apologising for a long time. We've, we feel welcomed yeah, and they okay. should accept the apology. We can all move on then. But before you go, Alex, there, <laughs> so are, reports, there are reports that the U Ukrainians are retaking key cities in the uh, nation's northeast from the Russian invaders. Do you think Russians, Russia is on the run in this war? Well, this has been, I mean, the last nine months have been a very curious period in this war. I, I always like go back to the theory that, that that truth is the first casualty of war and so i always take everything i hear coming from this conflict with a pinch of salt seen it reported today like you have that the um the front line in the northeast of the country there in the donbass region is getting pushed back and that that seems to be true even the russians seem to accept it um except that the russian side of the fence are saying 
that they are regrouping. That's a funny way to regroup, dropping everything and running. Uh, although, you know, I have done a bit of that myself over the years in sporting terms. But um, but it's it seems a bit unusual if it wasn't panicky. But look, I don't think we've seen the last of this conflict, sadly. I think this is, um, uh, you know, the, the images coming out of that part of the world are, are, are terrible and heartbreaking. You know, buildings destroyed, people dead. The sooner it's over, the better, of course. But I, 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 unfortunately, I, I don't think this is... Um, my feeling is this is not quite as, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, final as uh, we may be hearing out of the Western media. Senator Alex. Decisive is the word I Yes, decisive (laughs) indeed. (laughs) Very decisively put, Alex. (laughs) Senator Alex Antich, thanks for your time. Thanks, Fred. That's South Australian Senator Alex Antich. And before I go, you may have seen that the Opposition Conservative Party of Canada has a new leader, a bloke called Pierre Pauliev. His surname is spelt P-O-I-L-I-E-V-R-E, Pauliev. Just as they say Barack Obama created Donald Trump, so too has the woke hypocrite Justin Trudeau paved the way for Pauliev. Unlike Trudeau, he is consistent in his values and places the people of Canada before the global elites who seem to pull Trudeau's strings, and those of several Australian politicians for that matter. Pauliev recently told a political rally, quote, I will ban all my ministers from getting involved in the World Economic Forum, unquote. And if they want to attend that, quote, fancy conference of billionaires, they'd better book only, only book a one-way ticket because they won't be coming back to Cabinet. His early parliamentary career was under former Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper, who, Pauliev says, maintained his popularity by appealing to the centre-right without alienating the more strident Conservative base. This remains his game plan today. Canadian news magazine Maclean's said, quote, his belief in small government, fiscal restraint and personal responsibility is clearly bone deep, unquote. But he's also not afraid to attack the elites, the self-appointed opponents of free speech and the politicians who use the pandemic to limit freedom. In other words, he's taking the fight up to the incumbent Trudeau, not just over policy, but in the culture wars as well. And he's doing it by sticking to his principles. Pauliev isn't due to face an election until October 2025, but has already come out swinging. He's giving his followers reason to be optimistic, knowing that the current catastrophic authoritarian government will be held constantly to account and will eventually be given a decent run for its money at the next election. Peter Dutton might like to take note. Like Canada, Australia is partly being run by the puppets of globalists who want to impoverish us by closing down cheap, reliable energy, placing ambiguous environmental conditions on our prosperity and signing us up to international agreements that compromise our our sovereignty. Fighting back against this is what conservative parties do. Hopefully that will start happening in Australia soon. Well, that's it from me. Don't forget to tune back in at 8pm tomorrow for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH-TV. And I'll see you straight after him at 9 o'clock. Good night.